Paul's to get on this list. Okay? Let's just start with prayer because we have a lot to get into today. Let's just bow our heads. Father, we come to you grateful, thankful, and wanting to worship you, Lord. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. God, you control all things, Lord, and you are in control, even in our darkest, deepest hurts and pains, Lord. You know it all, you see it all, and you love us. God, you're wonderful, and we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory, God. And we just ask you, help us to receive your word, to refresh our minds, to be conformed into your image of your son, Lord, and that we would continue to grow. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All in a greeting? I don't know how you would say it. All in a greeting? All in a greeting. Greeting cards have a wonderful way of showing us compassion, concern, and care. One of the top places that you see greeting cards from is Hallmark. And I found a list of the top greeting cards that never made the list to be joined into Hallmark, okay? So I'm going to read this list that never made it in. They're sarcastic, so they're filled with this idea that it's supposed to be of humor, um, but they're, yeah, let's just go right into it. So the first one says like this. You're looking at the front page of this greeting card, and it says, Looking back over the years that we've been together, I can't help but wonder. You open the card, and it says, What was I thinking? The second says, I've always wanted to have someone to hold, someone to love. After meeting you, I've changed my mind. As you grow older, Mom, as I've grown older, Mom, I think of all the gifts you've given me, like the need for therapy. You look great for your age, almost lifelike. No, no. We've been friends for a very long time. What do you say we call it quits? You're such a good friend. And if we were on a sinking ship and there was only one life jacket, I'd miss you heaps and think of you often. No, these cards give a little bit of humor, but they don't hold that sense of compassion and care and love that when we send a card to someone, Someone who would have been, a, if a contemporary of our day and age, would have had incredible greeting cards, and his name is Paul. We're actually going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 today, and it's starting off just his greeting to the church. Now, before we can go any further, I'm a man of background. I do it every time. Um, I actually had to shorten this sermon multiple times because my background took up the entire time of the sermon. So... It's beautiful what's happening behind the scenes. And that's exactly what uh, background's showing. What's going on behind the scenes? If you have the other slide, actually, before we get to the actual verses. What's going on behind the scenes? And the first thing we want to know, or the question that is happening behind the scenes is, who is the Philippian church? Where were they birthed? What was... What was the start of this letter of why he's even writing to these people? Who are they? We actually find it uh, seen and shown in Acts chapter 16. It gives a great uh, picture of where the Philippian church was birthed. Now what's going on in this time is 
Paul had just had an argument with Barnabas. They're going separate ways. Paul's going on a second missionary journey to encourage the church to preach the word of God. He gets this vision from the Lord to go into Macedonia. And so now the gospel is going for the first time into Europe. And so we see the first act, the acts of the Holy Spirit. Every time you think of the word acts, that's what you think of. It's filled with so much action, so much continuous process that you're just like, oh my goodness, this is so dynamic. What's this now, that happening? And you kind of get lost and you want to slow down. But I'll give you a, just a quick brief picture. Um, what I would say is, because I'm going to be doing it short, that's your homework. Look at Acts chapter 16. Let God fill you. Let God bless you with his word of all that Paul is doing there. Study it. Let God soak up the beauty that's found in those scriptures and bring it into your hearts. So the first thing that happens, he's going there and he's looking for a synagogue. That's what Paul did every time he went to a new area. There was none because there wasn't even enough Jewish men to have a census to be able to start a synagogue, which would only have been 10 people. So he's traveling to the riverside where we find our first convert, the first person who would have belonged into the Philippian church. Her name was Lydia. She was a businesswoman who sold uh, purple garments. And I love that phrase in Acts chapter 16. It says, the Lord opened her heart to receive Paul's message. And it says that she was saved and she was born again. Not just her, but her household. And there was a baptismal going on right then and there. And the next thing it flies into in Acts chapter 16 is it goes right from that to saying they're going back and forth to this place of prayer by the riverside. And they're confronted by this fortune teller, demon-possessed girl, a slave who's sitting there announcing to everyone around them that these people are slaves of the Most High God coming to preach you the way of salvation. Paul had enough of it and cast the demon out of right on the spot. We're not clear to know if she's actually brought into the church because she would have been a slave in that culture. Her rights would not have been many. So we don't know, but oh man, I... I think she was. I think she had fellowship. She had joy in being part of this church that Paul was writing to. So because of this, because this demon was cast out of her and her masters could no longer make money by her fortune telling, they, they wanted Paul and Silas out of here. So they grab a bunch of people together. They throw them in front of the judge. And they said, these men are doing things that are unlawful for us Roman citizens. And they have them beaten in that Roman culture, they were beaten with these rods that would have inflicted such damage that would have broken skin, causing hemorrhaging, internal bleeding, as well as damage to organs, and it could cause death. It was no small beating. They would have been bloody and bruised and held, holding on sometimes in certain occasions for dear life. And here they are, they're beaten to this degree, then thrown into the prison where they're thrown into stocks. And there's such a beautiful thing that happens in the middle of their circumstances. They start singing praise to God. Despite what's happening in your life, God is worthy of praise. It's not what's happening, it's not what's coming next. It's God deserves it no matter what your circumstances are. But then God does something. 
as he always does. He shakes the entire jail cell and the chains fall off. The doors fly open. The jailer's so upset. He's like, if these men find out, like when I, wait, when they, when I go to send them in the morning to the judge and they're not here, these prisoners, man, I'm gonna be killed. So you know what? I'm gonna do this now. I'm gonna, instead of being dishonored in front of all these people in a Roman culture, I'm gonna kill myself. And this jailer's getting ready to kill himself and Paul says, hit the lights no one's, don't do anything. He says, we're all here. And the jailer falls to his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? And we find another beautiful thing. He's saved and comes into the kingdom after Paul preaches to him the word of God. Him and his household, they come and they get served by the very people who were guarding them. This jailer then takes him into their home and cleans up his wounds. And there's a baptismal again all over. This is the background of what's going on. But what about Paul? Where's he writing this letter? What's happening in this occasion? Well, he's actually going to be in prison right now. It was not unlikely for Paul to be in some negative circumstances, okay? But in this occasion, he's writing in, from Rome, chained up, and being held not knowing if he's going to die soon or if he's going to be set free. And so this is important to know that as we're reading this letter, this letter that has such a fusion and a constant theme of joy and delight, in the middle of his circumstances, of all that's going on, he has things to be joyful and to rejoice in. So painting that picture, we can get into the scriptures and actually take a look at what's going on here. So Philippians, I'm going to read 1 through 8 so we can all get a big picture here. It says, to all God's holy people. Uh, that's not the first verse. There, I'll just read it from my Bible. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all sa the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affections of Christ. This is the passage we're looking at. And we're going to break it down. The first two verses, we're actually going to see a position we need to maintain. When we look at those first two verses, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. This is whom he's writing to. This is how he's addressing himself. Paul is saying, here I am with Timothy. This is, this is the accolade. This is the characteristic, the, the value we want to show ourselves as, as a servant of Christ. And he says, this is whom we're writing to. Saints, 
We're writing to deacons. We're writing to elders. And he puts them all in the same category. Yes, there's hierarchy within church. There's value to spiritual authority. But when Paul's writing to them, he puts them all on equal playing field when it comes to the body of Christ. What I want to highlight on is how they describe themselves, which actually isn't even up here. The main point I'm going to emphasize here is a position we're maintaining. Paul and Timothy, they characterize themselves as servants of Jesus Christ. A servant. When we think of servants, I instantly think of a waitress or a waiter. You know, you're telling me to get me my Diet Coke, and by the time you get back, I have 12 other things for you to, to tell me to, that I'm going to tell you to go get. And when you come back again, I'm going to tell you another 10 things to go get me. But then they clock out and they leave. And their responsibility is limited. But when we look at the word, is the, uh, the slideshow not working? If the, if the other one about what the actual word servant, where it'll have that first point, a position to maintain. Okay, we did that. Okay, so a position to maintain. When we look at the Greek there for the word servant, it actually is the word slave. And it's used many times throughout the scriptures in the New Testament as well as the Old. This is a culture that would have had active slavery going on. There was rough estimates from the Roman culture that the places that they conquered, around 40% of those places conquered, would have been actually in bondage and in slavery. That word we instantly think of is absolutely negative and disturbing and disgusting because of the history and what's happened and what we've done. Well, not us particularly, but what's happened in our culture in the past. Now, there's an important thing that we need to know is that this is what we're going to examine, what the Bible is saying about this word and what it's not saying. So what, let's just look at the definition first. Slave or doulos or servant is the state of being completely controlled by another or bound to another. It conveys the idea of ownership, possession, allegiance, dependence, subjection, and loyalty. All these words are important to know because it gives a better kind of mouthful when we understand our relationship towards the Lord. We say Lord, the word in Greek is kuros, which will mean master, one who owns another, one who has absolute control of another, one who dictates, assigns, and makes tasks that another obeys and follows. We're getting a little bit more of a picture here. So what we were looking at is Paul and Timothy saying the only thing they're doing here. Other passages Paul writes in other books of the Bible in the New Testament, the other epistles, he uses often that he says, I'm an apostle. I'm a slave of Christ is not one that he uses in many of them. But an apostle was his necessary authority because he had to rebuke these churches. He had to let them know that I've received special knowledge from Christ. God, Christ has commissioned me and you need to receive my word, not as my word, but the word of the Lord. But here he, he comes from a different perspective because the Philippian church was so dear to his heart. They loved him. He loved them. They had been through so much 
From the time this letter is written, from Acts chapter 16, 10 years would have passed in time. And there was this constant fellowship and community that they had established. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, we see actually, I want to look to the next slide here. Let's see if we can flip over to it. Here's where we can actually see again the idea of a slave to Christ. Let's read this, Romans 6, 20 through 23. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become, there it is, slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, our Master. Whether you want to agree with it or not, portrayed in Scripture is this idea that whom we're obedient to is whom we have allegiance towards and whom we're serving and who we're submitting to and whom we're a slave of. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it's one or the other, and it makes it very clear, it's painting this picture, that you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, a slave of God, serving, honoring, living for him day in and day out. The lordship of Christ is a key component to knowing the gospel and knowing God's plan and will for our lives. It's not just a savior with a safety net, but a constant decision to say, picking up your cross, dying to yourself, and following him daily. So when we see in this passage, when he calls himself a slave, what's portrayed is absolute obedience. He gives himself this title. He gives him and Timothy this title. It's not just him and Timothy. It's found in James chapter 1. James gives himself this title. In Jude, Jude gives himself this title. It's given to other followers of Christ in the New Testament. It's given in the Old Testament to all the prophets, to major headlining people you would know like Moses, Jacob, to Caleb. This is a word that they honored, that they loved to say. It portrayed humility to the utmost degree, obedience to the utmost degree, loyalty to the utmost degree. We belong to another. You've been bought with a price. And that's the price of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You know, my words can't do it justice. There was a missionary woman named Mabel Williamson who spent her life in China. And as she was there, she came to know what this idea of a servant or slave of the Lord looked like. And here's a poem from her book, Have We No Rights?, I will recommend it. I'm in the middle of reading it. It is powerful to see a new aspect or dimension to our relationship with God. Here's her poem. Listen carefully. He had no rights. This is talking about Christ. No right to a soft bed and a well-laid table. No right to a home of his own, a place where his own pleasures might be sought. No right to choose pleasant, loving companions, those who could understand him and sympathize with him. 
no right to shrink away from the filth and sin, to pull his garments closer around him and turn aside to walk in cleaner paths, no right to be understood and appreciated, no, not by those whom he even poured out a double portion of his love, no right even never to be forsaken by his father, the one who meant more than all to him. His only right was silently to endure shame, spitting, blows, to take a place as a sinner at the dock, to bear my sins in anguish on the cross. He had no rights. And I? A right to the comforts of life? No. But a right to the love of God for my pillow. A right to physical safety? No, but a right to the security of being in his will. A right to love and sympathy from those around me. No, but a right to the friendship of the one who understands me better than I do myself. A right to be a leader among men. No, but the right to be led by the one whom I have given my all, led as a little child with its hand in the hands of his father. A right to a home and dear ones? No, not necessarily, but a right to dwell in the heart of God. A right to myself? No, but oh, I have a right to Christ. All that he takes, I will give. All that he gives, I will take. He, my only right, the one right before which all other rights fade into nothingness. I have full right to him. Oh, may he have full right to me. I want to highlight a part of this poem, and I want you to think clearly. We're slaves of someone, something to sin or to righteousness, to God or the devil. There's no lopsided in-between choice here. Whom do you belong to? Part of this poem says, all that he takes, I will give. And all that he gives, I will take. Does he have that kind of rights in your life? Does he have that kind of privileges to take every aspect of you apart? All your dreams, all your wants, all your desires, laying them down for what God wants for your life. That's Paul and Timothy's heart. That's their pride. That's their joy. Because what they saw was how this was done in love. Exodus 21.5 in the Old Testament law gave a provision for certain slaves who loved their master so much that they did not want to go free. And they chose to say, I want to be a slave for life to you in love because of the kind of person you are, because of the kind of master you are, where they would go to a doorpost and literally take a spike and drive it through their ear. And it showed a branding that I belong to him, and they wore it with pride. I belong to the Lord. This is something the Spirit of God wants to quicken in your heart. Do you belong to him? Do you not just belong to him, does he have every aspect of your life at his fingertips? All in a greeting.
a position to maintain a constant walk with God this way as a servant, as a slave. He says in verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a common phrase in that culture to say just an introduction. But we see something beautiful in grace. It's where the origin of salvation comes from. Unmerited, undeserved gift. That's the gospel. Salvation is found in grace. That's where it starts And its effect on a person's life will be peace, shalom peace, constant contentment, not this back and forth merry-go-round that we constantly do. Salvation has the ability to cleanse our minds, our hearts, and give us an effectual joy and peace. He says, I thank my God, verse 3, every time I remember you, In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. I thank my God every time I remember you. Something about giving thanks. There's something about having joy in prayer. Delight, the word joy, delighting in. Delighting in prayer for another. Every time he thought of these people, it made him burst into thanksgiving to God for these people. This is an affection, a desire, a joy he had with it comes to the church and the body of Christ. What's incredible is that when we look at other passages, other scriptures about thankfulness, or giving thanks, I think of one here, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we don't have it up here. It says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Whatever your situation, Paul would have said, I'm in prison, and yet I still have a reason for thanks. I still can be grateful to God. Actually, not even a person's with me. He says, I remembered the person, and it gave him a reason to give thanks to God. Let me read off a couple more. It says in Psalms 107.1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Ephesians 5.20, Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God is a beautiful thing. An opportunity to just take things not just from a matter of 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 where we're at and what's going on in our circumstances, but rising above it, being grateful, having gratitude, even when things are tough and hard. God is a good God. You know what's interesting is he says, I gave thanks every time I remember you. Every time. He's not remembering the the beating, the imprisonment, or the past times of hardships. No, he chose to use memory. A life surrendered to the Holy Spirit shows us a beautiful thing about a prayer life we should exemplify. It shows us that we have 
the opportunity in remembering things, things of positivity, things that bring thanksgiving. It's been quoted, and there's a common line that says, some people can find the manure pile in any meadow. When you, get, when you think of other people, are the thoughts negative? Are they constantly fixed on what they did wrong to you? How they hurt you? How they made you angry? How you're holding a grudge? Or can you, with grace as your lens, cover those faults and see there's a reason that God's put them in your life and that you can give thanks to God for them? So a prayer life to exemplify thanks God often. It's the overflow of a content heart. Of a content heart. Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever my circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. All situations that God, as sovereign Lord and master of my life, whatever place he's put me in, he saw the prison as an opportunity to extend the gospel. That's in verse 12 here. He saw all aspects of what's going on in his life as a reason to still be content, to still be grateful, to know that God's going to carry him through. He has the strength and the ability to do so. And out of a content heart, thanksgiving can come easy. Giving thanks can come easy. He doesn't just thank God for them, though. He intercedes for them. A prayer life to exemplify intercedes or is others-focused. It's concerned about others. The Holy Spirit would have us see that we should be thanking God when we come in prayer. That we should be interceding on behalf of others. It's actually a a quote I read here from a pastor. I'm going to read this. It says, The passion of a person's heart comes out in prayer. If you examine what you pray for and find you pray only for your needs, your problems, questions, struggles, it's an indication of where your heart is. If you pray infrequently, briefly, or in a shallow manner, It's an indicator you may have a cold heart because prayer is not an inner desire in that person. The call to duty of prayer will not overcome a cold heart because prayer is an internal compulsion, the Holy Spirit compelling them, not accomplished by outward conformity. Lack of prayer doesn't mean a person is merely disobedient. It indicates selfishness Selfishness, of which the only remedy is repentance. That is really powerful. We can look at ourselves in the mirror and really quickly see where we're at. God can do a gut check real fast for us. And I'm thankful he did that already for you. If we notice what we're praying for, Do we really trust that God is in control, that my situation is taken care of? Yes, we make petitions and prayers for ourselves, but is that the focus? Is self your focus in your prayer life? Man, then we've missed it. 
We've lost view of who we can trust in. The absolute beauty of the God who's in charge and created the entire universe. There's a call back to repentance of picking up the life that is led and directed by the Holy Spirit. He prays for others. He's focused on others. He thanks God for others. And he has a reason to pray this way with joy. He says, I'm in prison. I'm in a bad situation. And I'm going to pray for others, but I'm going to do it with delight. I'm going to do it with joy. Why? Verse 5 here. The next thing we know, a, a life yielded to the Spirit of God. It says here that there's a partnership that we should belong in. Or there's a partnership. That's the reason for his joy. Because all of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership is something that we look at this word and it's like a sharing in common. To share in common, to have the same idea that we're on the same mission or the same working. And he says what we're sharing in common with, what we're partnering in, and he's partnering in the gospel. The good news that God has come and made a way for sinners damned to hell to have a relationship now, to come to know this loving God who wants relationship with them and to pull them from death to life. And there's provision for you today if you would hear his voice calling you, saying there's good news for your soul to come from death to life, to repent and turn from your ways and to come and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. He says, I'm always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. We can partner with so many things. You have business partners. You have partners that are on the same volleyball team, the same ideas that we do the same things in common. A spouse is an aspect of a partner. But this was a specific partnership, one that belonged one to God. He says, ways we can partner in the gospel because of time, I'm just not even going to read the scripture passages. Service. We can partner through service in the gospel. Matthew 25, I'll give you a tip. It says, if anybody would give a, the least of these even a drink of water, whatever you did to the least of these, you did unto me. We can partner in the gospel through service, through caring, through loving, through simple acts of compassion. You can partner in the gospel through evangelism. It constantly mentioned that because of his chains, the body of believers were more encouraged and emboldened to share God's word to those around them. Evangelism was a way we can partner in the gospel. Another way we can partner is through prayer. It says that I, in this state, not knowing my future, what's going to happen to me in prison, he says, but through your prayers, Philippians, and through the Holy Spirit's provision, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Another way we can partner is through financial giving. The Philippian church on several occasions had blessed Paul and been in support with him. There's a huge passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 we can't go through. But it mentions out of their deep poverty they gave generously. No one took this ministry of giving and receive except for you. 
You can partner. You can belong. You have a role to play in these simple ways. Don't think that you don't have a role, that you don't have a part, that you don't have anything to give. There's so much you can do. And another way that's said there is in through godly living. Chapter 1 of Philippians and 27, it says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Holiness, righteousness, living after God, stepping away from sin. That is a beautiful way that we can partner in the gospel. I'm looking at time, and I love you guys, and I don't want to keep you all here longer. Does that say 11.50? Okay, we'll just keep going. All right. (laughs) Thank you all for loving me. (laughs) So there's a partnership to be involved. The next point and the last part to this here, before we get to it, he said in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, the moment of salvation for them, this church literally rolled up their sleeves. The jailer started taking care of Paul's wounds. Lydia wanted to have hospitality towards them. They immediately rolled up their sleeve and started getting involved. And if you think church is some place that you just come to receive, you're missing it. Church is rolling up the sleeves, getting involved, investing, being a partner and seeing, giving your giftings and how you can contribute. Can you be a Sunday school teacher? Can you be a youth pastor? Can you do something to give to the church body? Yes. That's church. And God's urging everyone to be part of it. From the first day until now, it's continuous It's ongoing. It's not just what you've done in the past. It's the next step, the next thing you're willing to commit to God. He says, being confident of this. Being confident. The word confidence is to be forcefully persuaded to believe. To have as concrete evidence. I'm convinced. I am confident of what, Paul? What are you confident of? That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He, God, who began a good work, your partnership, your belonging, your trusting in the gospel, the salvation of your souls, that this work that's happened, that you've given your life to him, that as you continue to commit your life, he had no problem expressing that as you continue to walk in this, there's a confidence you can have. There's an assurance you can be known that you are with God and he's gonna complete the work he started in you. There's an encouragement for every one of you. You're looking at your faults. You're looking at how you mess up. You're not where you want to be. You're not doing the things that you want. But God sees the end picture. Stay with him. Trust him. Continue to give your lives as the solid anchor of your soul. What a beautiful promise. Memorize it. Hold on to it. When you start beating yourself up, remember the anticipation that God sees glorification in you. Stay with him. Trust him. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Verse 7 and 8 as we close. 
It's right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, for whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. All right, go to this last slide here. A passion to imitate. What is this passion? It's an affection and love for the church, for the fellowship of believers around you. I was amazed at just the way God orchestrated this entire day, the sending of the abusos, the love that they have for us, the love that we have for them and sharing life with them. This is so much portrayed in what Paul was speaking of to the Philippians here. The words that are highlighted, I even made them bold. It says, it's right for me to feel. I have you in my heart. It says, I long, affection. These are words of deep concern. It's right for me to feel this way. Why is he having to like say that, yeah, this is the right feeling I should have? Because he's going through some really bad situations and the people were concerned about him. The whole reason this letter came to be is that they set up Epaphroditus because they were concerned about Paul being in prison. And he's sitting there saying, I have joy. I give thanks. I have confidence. And he's like, it's right for me to feel this way no matter what my circumstances, because you're in my heart, because I love you. I have you in my heart for whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. Here's a beautiful part. I have you in my heart whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. No matter where I am, church, I have you in my heart. No matter what my situation, whether I'm going without sleep, whether I'm in pain, whether I'm hurting, whether I'm rejoicing, no matter my circumstances, you're in my heart. Why? Here's a reason of something we need to cling to in the word of God. Can we go to the actual verses? It says here that all of you share. I have you in my heart because all of you share in God's grace with me. You've been partners of God's supernatural, beautiful grace. Because you've been a partner of that, there's a reason that I've opened my heart to you as a brother, as a sister. We sometimes see the, it's no trouble for us to love our family members, those closest to us. But Paul says he has an affection, a care, a longing. He's opened his heart to the people for the simple reason that they also have Christ. Church, we need to grab hold of this fellowship. We need to grab hold of God has not only saved and done a work in me and I've come to know the author and perfecter of my faith, but God has done that in someone else. And he's doing that work in them. My goodness, he had a reason to care about them then because God was working in them. Can you grab hold of that church? Open your hearts wide. He said to the Corinthian church, open your hearts wide. I'm not withholding my my, uh, my affections from you, but your affections you're withholding from us. Man, I got the concordance with me, man. Pastor Ted, you ever need to know. He's got it. <laughs> man, the body of believers, 
Open your hearts wide. This week I would challenge you. Reach out to someone around you. Don't consider what someone's not doing for you. Reach out to realize God has given you a beautiful community who loves and wants to be there alongside of you. There was a Greek writer named Lucian. He lived from the time of 120 AD to 200. And it said of early Christians, it's incredible to see the fervor with which the people of Christianity help each other. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, talking about Jesus, has put it into their hearts and heads that they act and they should be all as brothers and sisters. What a beautiful, beautiful testimony from an unbeliever seeing the church that they give, that they share, that they love each other, not even to their own benefit, but to the benefit of those around them. Church, let's grab hold of this kind of concern. It's not just a greeting. This is the word of God, active and alive. Some of us need to work on that, that affection for church. Thank you all so much for the time and for the opportunity and the privilege. I'm the better man here. I gained all of you. You all got stuck with me though, but I'm grateful. I just want to pray us out and everyone have a blessed day, okay? Father, we thank you. We love you, Lord. How good it is to be known by you, to walk with you, God. I thank you so much, God, you've given us each other. Lord, you're so worthy, God, and I pray that you would sink deep in our hearts this longing, this affection, this care to be somewhat homesick for our church, to love them that much. Expand our hearts, God. May we abound in love more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. We need you, Lord. We praise your name for the work you're doing in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me as we finish. What a wonderful word, huh? What a wonderful word, Justin. Tremendous word. I don't know if this even re requires an altar call because the thought that stuck out to me, that was Paul's heart. His heart was wide open because they were fellow laborers with him. He loved them. And that's what it is with us here because you love other people that are, their hearts are opened to the gospel. That's why we love one another. And that's where we find a place. God, how can we serve you? Let's sing this final song. Shall we, Miss Loretta? What song?